You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live for another program in our Race in America series. I'm Arelis Hernandez, a national reporter here at The Post. Today, I'm joined by Cecilia Vega, the first Latina correspondent at 60 Minutes. Cecilia, bienvenida to Washington Post Live. Oh my God, gracias. I want to give you a big abrazo. I feel like I, I know you and I just, I'm a big fan of your work. So I'm going to, I'm going to gush a little bit too. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you for that. Um, but we're here to talk about you. <laughs> so let's get started. I was like, look at us started. though. Like this is, this is, just, just makes me happy just seeing this right here. We're, we're going to talk about this. I know, but like how far we've come, but like, come on, this is, this is big. This is great. No, I hear you. I hear you. And and your quote in the sizzle reel, which, you know, it's great to be the first, but the issue is making sure you're not the last, right? And we'll get into that a little deep, more deeply. But I want to start with 60 Minutes. And you, this, you started this year as a correspondent with them. Very briefly, what was it like stepping into this new role, this new role and how are you making it your own? Girl, <laughs> it, um... I, so I started in March, as you said, and I know at some point, you know, journalists, we're all kind of innate complainers. I think we're altruists. We want to see the world a better place. We think we can fix it. At some point, check in with me in like six months, a year, two years, I'll, I'll give you like a complaint or something like that. But I'm completely still on cloud nine gushing. It is it is the most amazing job. I, I, I didn't even dream for a job like this to be at a point in my career where I can choose to cover the stories that I want to cover that I think are going to make an impact and have an impact because the platform is 60 minutes. I mean, it's just still pinch me. I I get nervous when I walk into that studio. I still walk around that newsroom and take pictures and send them all to my mom and videos. I mean, I I still get starstruck when I see my colleagues. It's it's pretty amazing. So let's talk about the stories that you're passionate about, right? Like what, how do you choose them? If you have this sort of free reign, where do you draw inspiration from? Where do you draw stories from? I, I cover what the stories that I would want to read, the stories that I think need attention, um, the stories that I feel can make a difference. And the blessing in a place like 60 Minutes is that you you can do it all. And I, and I, again, I haven't been here very long, but just in the, the handful of months that I have been here, I've done a piece on um, sperm whales and saving sperm whales in the Caribbean. I have done a profile on the singer Pink. Um, I have done a piece on mental illness and homelessness in California, which has ripple effects all over the country. Um, I am just right two minutes before I walked to, to sit down with you, I was tracking a piece on Ukraine, it's gonna. I've got a piece running on Sunday on why horses are dying at, at racetracks around the country. Um, it's it is it has been just such um, a refreshing change for me to be able to say yes to these assignments that I feel like can make a really big difference. And and that's just not even including the stuff I've got coming up. We're gonna go to do a piece in the border, doing a piece in uh, in Mexico on mezcal. It really is just the gamut. It's the dream, the dream job. But you choose because you feel like you can make a difference. That's mm -hmm. how that's how I, I choose a lot of my pieces. Not to mention the fun ones too. You want to mix, right? <laughs> Pink was fun. Oh, you gotta have fun, right? This is like a super fun job. <laughs> but you didn't you didn't say yes immediately to 60 minutes. Why was that? Um, 
I, it was a long conversation. I joked with the executive producer. We, we, we dated, when I say we dated for a long time. Um, I, I said, yes, when the offer came in, when my contract is up in TV, we, you know, we work on these, on these contractual obligations, but, um, but it's no secret that I thought about it when 60 minutes calls you go, right. The opportunity is so rare. They, they, they haven't had new core, very many new correspondents. Um, but for me, the question was, I was at a network and had been there for a very long time and had an important job covering the White House. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to give up the day-to-day news coverage that I had done for 20-something years, which is living you know, with a suitcase in the back of your car and kind of running and gunning and breaking news, and you know, especially in the Trump White House, five or six or seven stories a day and, and being part of election nights and being part of the big that big story of the day. And I am 46, about to be 47. I wasn't sure if I was ready to give up that grind, so to speak. Um, And then I realized through and talking with Bill Owens, our executive producer and others on the show, that you are still doing those stories, the top stories that matter that day. You're just doing them in a bigger way. What I get to do now is research for a week sometimes ahead of a big interview. Uh, And I sit down and then I go and I do a two hour long interview with somebody or spend four days in Ukraine and then realize we need something else and go back for the same story. So I get to cover those stories that matter, but in a bigger bigger way that allows me to kind of breathe and and study it more. And, And then I realized that it's now the time for me to do that. I'm not walking away from the grind, it's still a grind. It's just doing that in a different way, thinking about the stories in a different way that it is a luxury we don't get in daily news. No, I hear that. I hear that. Well, let's talk about you. Yeah, being I know you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about being the first, right? You're the first Latina correspondent at 60 Minutes. You're the first Latina White House correspondent for an English language new- network at ABC. Um, but you said being the first is very nuanced for you. For you. Why, why is that? It is um, a privilege to be the first. And as I say all the time, you don't want to be the last when you're the first. But with that, I think comes a pressure, can come a pressure. And I am certainly one to put pressure on myself about a lot of things. You have these expectations of yourself. Um, I think I feel like there is an expectation from others, whether that's fair or not, of what you do when you're the first. Um, And you don't want to screw it up. And I think often when you're the first, you feel like this is self-imposed. Maybe it's self-imposed. Maybe it's society too. You've got to walk, you know, faster. You've got to be better. You've got to be smarter and you can't screw it up. And, And that's partly true, but there has to be some grace in that. And I've had to teach myself that um, you can be the first and you can drop the ball sometimes. Um, You can uh, make a mistake sometimes. And that doesn't mean that that takes away from you being the first, but it can often be a heavy mantle to carry. So I have to, I find myself reminding myself and very consciously telling myself, hey, you're, you're not carrying this mantle alone. A lot of people have carried it before you in other ways. Um, And just to like, slow down, it's okay. Like you don't have to be perfect all the time. 
What about that moment when like you realize that people were calling you and saying, God, I'm, I'm so happy there's a Chicana, there's a Mexican-American who's, you know, we made it, right? The, these are things that, um, you know, I'm kind of, it actually makes me sad when I encounter people who are like, oh, we have a Latina at the Washington Post. Oh, you know, like that they don't know these things. How does that make you feel? It's it's exactly what you just said. It, it So when I first... Um, you mentioned the the first chief White House job, chief chief White House correspondent uh, who was Latina for an English language network. That ne- that didn't feel like a first for me. I had no idea that that was a first, and I kind of was like, "Oh, wait, really?" And it wasn't until the announcement came out and I started hearing from younger people on Twitter or at uh, NHJ, the group that a lot of Latino journalists belong to, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, where young folks would come up to me and literally be like, wow, you did this. I can do this. And they see something in me. They see themselves in me and my story. And it was, I don't know if it was naive on my part, but in some ways there's a frustration. I'm obviously, I'm so glad people see your role, my role and, and see that they too can be exactly where we are and they should be, they should see that. But I guess I find it frustrating in that young people still feel that way to me it's kind of like guys 2023 why why are young people still feeling like holy crap you're a first like we, we should be past the first at this stage of the game i would have liked to have thought we would be past the first at this stage, i guess i hear you and for the benefit of our audience i'm also a member of nh day a vice president in fact of the organization <laughs> i want to talk about your family and your mom I, I understand you all are super close your mom encouraged you and your brother to go away to school and never come back. What were her hopes for you two? Oh, well, um, Janice is watching right now. She was the first one to sign up on this <laughs> link. I'll tell you, my brother probably is too. <laughs> so like, hi mom. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's, she watches everything. It's so funny. You know, we grew up in um, in California in the Bay Area and I went to high school in a city called Richmond, California. My mom still lives in Oakland. All of our, our family is in the East Bay. If anybody watching knows that area, I am super proud to come from that area. Um, and it is can be a rough area uh, where we went to high school, particularly Richmond. Richmond can be a rough town. And I don't know that I knew anybody at that point who had gone away to college. Uh, and my mom, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. My mom had gone on, uh, I think she was taken on one work trip, maybe two. And one of them was to Washington, D.C. at some point in her career. And she came back and just kept talking about Washington and Washington. And there were these museums and journalism. And, and it just, it, it was the only place I'd kind of ever heard somebody say, wow, you should check this out. And um, and that's where I just set my focus on going away to school. And she did the same thing with my brother. She was like, you guys have to have to get out. That doesn't mean you can't come back to your community. We can always go back. And I did. I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle for a long time, our, my hometown paper. But she really wanted us to see that there was so much more than that small world that we knew. And I am forever indebted to her for teaching us that. She was also a, a voracious, still is, reader and taught us that through reading. We may not have been the family that could afford plane tickets or free internships in college or traveling and big trip, but through reading, I learned that there was another world out there that I, I at some point wanted to see and had to see and be, I think became a journalist because of that. I'm so glad you brought up the San Francisco Chronicle because that leads to my next question. You started in print, right? <laughs> we have yeah, an girl. audience of- yeah, we have an audience question from Lori Carter from California, in fact, who's asking, what did your early career newspapers teach you? 
Might this be the Lori Carter I worked with at the Press Democrat in California? I'm wondering, I know that name. <laughs> I think I am um, a better broadcast reporter because of my background in newspapers. Um, it taught me to dive deep in a way that I don't know that I would have learned through um, through starting out in broadcast. That's just me and having having known uh, no, knowing both industries. I will also say I think that if I ever decided to go back and be do the flip and 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 be a newspaper reporter again or writing full time, I would be a better writer now because of what I have learned from broadcast, which is pictures and textures and sound and we get lazy as newspaper reporters and making our phone calls from the office and broadcast teaches you you've got to leave and you've got to get out there and see and smell and meet in person and so um for me it just the newspapers just really helped create the um the the reporter that I am today that's not to say like look people who start in broadcast. My learning curve was huge when I came into broadcast from newspapers. I didn't know how to walk and talk. Writing for broadcast is a totally different skill that I certainly didn't have uh, when I started out. If you, I'm not encouraging anybody to do this, but found one of the first broadcast pieces I ever did when I was back at PGU in San Francisco, like, whoa, they're really rough, but finally figured it out. <laughs> I did kind of the opposite thing as you. My degree is actually in broadcasting, and I just never did anything in broadcasting and ended up in newspapers. But in terms of the touching, and feeling, you texture, can always make the job. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. But let, let's talk about ABC for a minute, if you could. You really did show your versatility, right? You you can do lighthearted news on Good Morning America to more serious topics on World News Tonight. But talk to me about why covering the 2016 presidential election was such a game changer for you, both personally and professionally. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still um, trying to catch up on my sleep <laughs> from that campaign. It was the most intense and wild thing I've ever done in my life. So, and not even just that, you know, when I talk about it now and I think about where I am all these years later, it still doesn't feel like that long ago, even though it, it was. But to roll, come from that presidential cycle covering the Hillary campaign and the Democrats, and then rolling straight into the Trump White House, it just didn't stop. It didn't stop for six straight years of just complete news cycle insanity. Like I, it's, it's, it's the hamster wheel, it's the fire hose, it's all of the analogies. Um, but what I campaign, what I learned, campaigns are amazing. They're so fun. You are with people that you love. The Hillary campaign, uh, that most of the press corps were women. Uh, the main correspondents, the, the primary correspondents for the main networks were women. I, to this day, am still really great friends with the NBC and the CBS correspondents who were out on the road with me, not to mention the producing team um, that was with me. So it's a little bit like being in college, but for journalism, because you're living on, out of a suitcase and you do it for two years. I am someone who did it once and felt like that was all I needed to do. God bless the folks who want to do it year in and year out, and they do, and they are amazing at it. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot how to source, um, how to beat down doors, because you kind of can get in these bubbles and um, and kind of you need to find a figure out a way to go around to get people to talk to you and go through back doors. So it really taught me a lot about, I learned a, having even already been a reporter getting to that point, 
it gave me a lot more chops, I think, in terms of, of my reporting abilities. A lot of fun. So I went back and I watched some of your clips and interactions at the White House during the, the Trump presidency. And you, you said you, you said in the past that it wasn't your goal to make a name for yourself covering Donald Trump. Um, but what was, was what was your intention? How did you sort of navigate that experience? We didn't know how to navigate it. I mean, if I'm being really candid with you, we had to learn on the fly. Um, we never, the country has never seen anything like it, uh, particularly in terms of how we do our jobs. And so I think back to those initial days of, of the Trump administration, I mean, even like inauguration day, you would start in the morning at, you know, five or 6 a.m. and then you would go do your morning hit. At that point, it was for Good Morning America. And then you would just never leave the White House. You couldn't leave the White House until nine, seven, between seven and nine at night because so many different stories would break. And you would run from your desk to uh, the back offices in the West Wing to try to get people to talk to you out to the camera. And then he would tweet and the storyline would be something completely different. And then he would tweet again and, and the story would be completely different. So what was my strategy? My strategy was like survival <laughs> for the first few years. And then I think as an institution, the media learned to, it took us a minute though. It, we, we learned to pause and take a breath and realize like not everything he tweeted merited an update running out to the camera or breaking news, uh, you know, and not everything merited a reaction. Sometimes we had to investigate and dig a little deeper and then figure out what the story was. Um, but in and in, then in terms of personal interaction with him, to your question, to your point about me saying it wasn't about me, I, I think that's the newspaper reporter in me. I've always been, um, I just naturally am um, a little uncomfortable with the story being about me when when we do things in TV where, you know, you've got the correspondent walking down the street, every crew will tell you that's where I get nervous because I'm like, ah, this just doesn't come naturally to me. And so when it came to those questions and uh, it went back, the questions I wanted to ask, um, I always ask myself, what did my mom want to know? What moved my family back home in the Bay Area of California, California want to know? Uh, and that was kind of my my north star in in asking questions at that White House. What do you think is the most significant change in journalism since starting your career? Ooh, ha, where do we begin? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just like in a very personal way, uh, one of the reasons I decided to leave newspapers was because I just saw how much the industry was changing, and I was covering. San Francisco politics, City Hall at the time. And I feel like at the beginning, maybe, and maybe this is sort of naive, I don't know, but I felt like I was doing these kind of longer, more investigative stories. And as the years went on, it became quicker copy, churning out more hits for digital, for online. And I felt almost like a radio reporter. I was just churning out hit after hit, piece after piece after piece. And I thought, oh, I, I want to take a little bit more of a breath. And, and I went to broadcast, maybe not realizing like in broadcast, you actually do the same thing sometimes more, um, but just in a, in a very different way. Um, and so certainly, I, I mean, everything has changed from, from when I started out. We had, I don't even think we had a website at my very first newspaper. That's how old I am. Um, we certainly had one computer where we lined up. I remember covering an early census and we would like print out reams of documents and we like sit there and go through <laughs> all the census data. So thank God that's changed. Uh, but I think we 
are doing a better job of catching up. We have done a good job of catching up. I can, uh, you know, I, I don't cover the media. I don't pretend to have any of the answers to how the media should should run things. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I just do my stories and, you know, hope that people people watch. But I will tell you, just being at 60 Minutes, when you go out and you talk to young folks about this show, they are watching it. They're watching it like crazy. And they're watching it a lot of times on YouTube or they're watching it in clips on their phone. And I think media has to catch up to that and meet viewers where they are. Um, we certainly have. I mean, our YouTube numbers are off the charts. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're still we're still learning. And where do you think the industry is still lacking? I, I, it's <laughs> this, We could talk about this forever. Where do you think the industry is still lacking? Well, again, I, I mean, like, I don't, I don't pretend to sit in a conference room and like make decisions or, or think about these things, but I, let's talk about this in terms of our personal perspectives and experiences, right? Um, I think we have come a long way in terms of diversity and have been really pleased to see just in even my time in broadcast, we can, we can start there. So what has that been like 12 years, something like that? Um, see things change in a very real way in terms of diversity, in terms of what newsrooms look like, in terms of what the morning calls look like, in terms of who is leading those morning calls. I'm not just talking about the people who are on the air that we have seen things change. Because when I was coming up, there were not a lot of us on television. I think I remember like a John Quinones, who I bow down to to this day. Um, who was like, and we call him the OG, who was our OG, but there were not a lot of faces like ours on, on, in broadcast, on television. And that has changed a lot. For me, where I would like to see things change, we have a long way to go still. We've come far, but we have a long way to go, is in the, you know, the weather department. I want to see Latinos and and more diverse faces making decisions about news coverage that are not just about issues, uh, as we would call them, like black and brown issues or diverse issues. I want to see them, I want to see folks making decisions about weather, and I want to see folks making decisions about politics, and I want to see folks making decisions about graphics, and all of those things. Um, we've come a long way. I, I, I really am proud of how far we've come, but, but we do have a long way to go still. I hear you. I hear <laughs> in 2018, you said, I don't think there's been a better time in my lifetime to be a journalist than right now. Do you still feel that way in 2023? Yeah, I, to I totally do. And I think of, um, I I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. I think of you guys at the Post and at the Times and what we're doing at 60. Uh, I mean, it is, it is such a consequential time to break through the noise, especially heading into the election that we are in right now that looks unlike any election we have ever seen in American democracy in the history of this country. The, the coverage that you guys are doing, the coverage that we saw to me through the Trump administration as it relates to literally top to bottom everything, the investigative journalism that is going on right now. I say this to young people when I talk at, at conferences, like sign up don't be afraid this is such a great time to be an investigative journalist and and our jobs and our voices are so crucial to the democratic process right now i mean more so than i can ever think of in in my lifetime so yeah i i totally stand by that we can get that tattooed matching tattoos never been a better time to be a reporter than right now <laughs> 
name the place in the end in the day and I'll be there. <laughs> so you also said that being Mexican American impacts how you ask questions, the stories that you push on and the narratives that you won't let go of as a journalist. Talk to me more about this. I, um, I believe in the phrase unbiased journalism, sort of. I believe you check your politics at the door. I believe you, 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 you strive for fairness and you strive for accuracy. I also firmly believe that I am a better reporter because of the lived experiences that I bring to the interviews, the questions, the writing, the framing of stories. Like, I, I, I just can't shake being a woman. I can't shake being Mexican-American. Like, that's what you're getting when you get me in a chair sitting down with you. Um, in terms of stories and how that impacts what I do, you know, I think you showed this clip, it kind of gave me chills um, at the beginning where I was at the border on an assignment. And that was a, that was a story in particular that I really, really fought to go do. It's, it's hard for a White House correspondent to leave the beat because as I was saying earlier, you're sort of tethered there for breaking news and you're running out to the camera in case something happens. And that was one where we were talking about, um, uh, child separations and child detainment. And it, it was really heated at the border at that time. And I thought, I, I, I basically went to my bosses and I was like, you guys got to let me go. You have to let me go to the border and tell this story and then bring that back to the White House. And I believe that it made me a better White House reporter. Whenever I could get out and go do things like that in the field and come back and bring that to the president, and say, hey, I saw this with my own eyes. Are you comfortable with the way this is happening? What is your policy on X? Because I saw Y. Um, is that me being Mexican-American and pushing for something? Perhaps, because that was an issue that particularly I think hit hard for a lot of Latinos in this country and, and any, anybody really, uh, many people watching, seeing seeing children separated from their families. Um, but but yeah, I mean, that was one where I, I felt like I didn't wanna let up and uh, and got results out of that one. So I promise you, we've touched it on a couple places that we talk about representation, right? And so as we look forward to the, unfortunately, it's towards the end of this program, but let's spend a few minutes on representation, the importance and the undue pressure that comes with it. What is your advice to the next generation of young Latinas, NHJ uh, members and beyond about how to make their voices heard, whether in news or beyond that? Some of this, this is not an easy answer. Um, some of how you make your voice heard comes with time, I think. I It wasn't until I was in my career and deep in it and had kind of established, I think, a reputation where I wasn't scared, at least internally, to make my voice heard, to say, wait a second, why are we framing a story like this? Or why aren't we covering that? So, so some of it is you gotta pay your dues, but in that, trust me, there is a confidence that comes with your own background. You, you young Latinas, to all of you watching, uh, and Latinos and, 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 and anybody with a story to tell, you have a superpower and you are bringing that to the table. Your background will make you a better journalist. Your lived experience will make you a better journalist. You, when you bring um, those experiences to your interviews and there is an empathy there, and you know right from wrong. <laughs> you know when something doesn't ring true. And with time, you will 
find that inner voice, to trust that gut, to say this might be the one time that's worth fighting that fight and speaking out and paying, you know, will it be being willing to maybe take a little heat for speaking up, but it's, it's worth it when you do it. Okay. Point of personal indulgence. I understand that you are a talented salsa dancer. Um, and I want to know. Are we going, if you out? Could are get... we going somewhere in DC? Where are we going? <laughs> We'll head. I'll be there on a plane in a second and come down to San Antonio. But wanted to ask you real quick, like if you could dance to any, if you only had one choice of a salsa song, what song Girl, are you dancing to? Um, oh man, I mean, like I'm, you know, Brujeria is amazing. Um, like you could any any Mark Anthony song. I'm like Gran Combo. I've seen them like twelve times in a concert. Like they tried to security tried to make us sit down because we were all busting out dancing in the in the in the lines and the in the stands so like yeah no any Grand Combo, Mark Anthony I'm I'm there you tell me when wait were you at the Kennedy Center uh recently yes, for you? the I was there I was there <laughs> with my mom who was like a huge fan the Grand Combo played at her high school prop so she's she's well, I was yeah. the one security was tapping on the shoulder telling me to sit down so yeah <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and really appreciate the conversation. It was really great talking to you. Thank you and keep killing it out there. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.